Welcome to this episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Norman Poser about his new biography of 18th century British General John Burgoyne. Burgoyne is best known for leading a military campaign from Canada in 1777 during the American Revolution, which culminated in disaster at the Battle of Saratoga. Norman Poser is a retired law professor who enjoyed a distinguished career at the Brooklyn Law School in New York. Prior to that, he served as Assistant Secretary of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. He's the author of several books on 18th century history, including his latest, From the Battlefield to the Stage, The Many Lives of General John Burgoyne, which was published by McGill-Queens University Press in the fall of 2022. Norman, many thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Nice to be here. So, Norman, you are today's witness to history. Tell our listeners exactly what happened on October the 17th, 1777. This was the date when General John Burgoyne surrendered his army to American forces under General Horatio Gates at Saratoga, New York. It was the probably, it was the worst disaster in British military history, at least in modern times. Uh, And it had enormous consequences. The main thing was the French came in on the American side, and that turned to be an extremely helpful thing for the Americans. And from the American point of view, uh, the surrender of General Burgoyne, the surrender of a professional, extremely good, efficient uh, British army uh, led the Americans to have much more confidence that they would win this war, which they did. But it took a few years. But this is regarded as the turning point of the war. So, well, we'll come back to the Saratoga campaign a little later, Norman, but uh, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about John Burgoyne's early life uh, and his eventual entry into the British Army at what was like a really young age. John Burgoyne was born into a upper-class British family. They weren't noblemen, but his grandfather was a baronet, just under the rank of a baron, which would be a, a nobleman. He spent five years at Westminster School. He entered this school when he was 10 years old. Uh, And uh, I believe that the school, and particularly the headmaster, a a cleric named Dr. Nicol, had a great uh, influence on him and the formation of his character. Nicol was a very unusual uh, headmaster Uh, at least for those days, uh, he didn't believe in flogging children or caning them. Uh, He believed believed in a sort of psychological uh, treatment or just psychological discipline. If if a boy uh, confessed to something he did did wrong uh, and showed some repentance, that was enough. Uh, uh, That was, and, and I believe that uh, Burgoyne, many years later, when he became the commander of a regiment, uh, took that took that to heart, 
uh, and the way he treated his men was with a great um, uh, humanity. Although he was, he could be very stern. He didn't believe in flogging, just like Doctor Nichol didn't believe in caning children. And even though Burgoyne uh, is known for a great defeat, there was no criticism of him by his men. They loved him. Okay, so Burgoyne enters the army at age 15, which wasn't unusual at the time. And he's a junior officer, and he's following in something of a family tradition. And he was off to a promising start in his army career, but uh, he was hit by an arrow and love intervened. What happened to him? That's exactly right. The love uh, was for the youngest daughter of the Earl of Derby, who was very rich, very influential. Uh, and the, the Earl of Derby, although, although Burgoyne at that time was in his late 20s and uh, was a, uh, a sophisticated, somewhat sophisticated man uh, who, uh, and a very decent man, uh, he didn't seem to, to, the, to the Earl to be a proper... Uh, a, suitor, a suitor for his daughter. He wasn't a nobleman, and he had very little money. Uh, and so he, uh, Burgoyne and uh, the Charlotte, Charlotte Stanley, the, the lady Charlotte Stanley, I should say, the daughter of uh, the Earl, uh, eloped, and Burgoyne sold his commission, and, that, uh, and w you could buy and sell commissions and that's how that was done in those days. And they both went to France. And they lived in France and later in Italy for five years until war broke out between, between England and France. So you mentioned the war. So the Seven Years' War breaks out in 1756. And, and Burgoyne decides to go home and rejoin the army. And by 1758, so two years later, he's a 35-year-old lieutenant colonel, so he's a senior officer, and he participates in three raids, uh, amphibious raids on the French coast. But he only sees his first real action under fire in Portugal in 1762. Uh, tell us about the campaign there and Burgoyne's role in it. Uh, Portugal is an extremely poor country. Uh, they were allied; they were traditional allies of uh, England. Uh, the English liked to drink uh, port, and the, t the town of Oporto in Spain, in Portugal, was uh, a, the center of that. And the English had quite a lot of investment uh, in uh, in Portugal. Uh, the the uh, foreign minister of France persuaded the Spanish to declare war in the Seven Years' War. They were allies of France. And England was an ally of Portugal. Uh, Portugal could not defend itself, and the British uh, sent money and troops to Portugal. Burgoyne uh, went there and was given the temporary rank of brigadier and was ordered uh, it, to attack a town uh, which is called Valencia de Alcantara. And he can, he uh, took uh, a number of uh, force of men, cavalry people, um, and they 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 had a, they 
took a they took a, a lightning raid on uh, this town. Uh, it was highly successful with very few English casualties, and it th that d daring night raid uh, made uh, uh, Burgoyne a hero, and he came home. Uh, a hero, even though the, the it was a small it was a small part of the war. The war had ended in in 1763, and uh, and uh, but Burgoyne made a reputation as a extremely uh, brave, aggressive uh, cavalry officer. So so he has some Burgoyne has the success you referred to in Portugal and he comes home and and this is where we start to get into some of the other dimensions uh, of his life and of his character that you refer to in your book. Um, so he turns in peacetime now he turns to two other significant pursuits. Uh, high stakes gambling centered on London's private clubs and maybe a little bit surprisingly for someone in his position the writing of verse. How do you think these activities reflected Burgoyne's social class and his conception of himself as a gentleman? Well, the the gambling was was done in in the clubs uh, on St James's Street in London, and a very very high stakes. Uh, the the one he was uh, uh, chiefly uh, chiefly he was a member of, of of more than one he was a member of white's club and brooks's club brooks's club was where he did most of his gambling there people would gamble on anything uh they they played cards and burgoyne became a a, a very competent card player uh and he probably made money doing that uh but they would bet on anything one time a a man fainted outside outside the club and he was carried in to the club and the peop the men uh, in, uh sitting uh by the window uh saw this this man and they started betting on whether he was dead or not yeah. <laughs> then somebody suggested uh that uh the bet uh, that he be that the fainted man be be bled. They they bleeded people when they were ill in in the 18th century, and somebody said, "No, that's not fair because it'll affect the bet." <laughs> the, the, that's that that is one of the most outlandish stories I've heard about the betting in in. And there are many others I could I could uh, uh, mention. Some of them I mentioned in the book. So, what about the writing of verse? Then, where did that particular talent come from? I don't know where it came from. But he, the, he did write verse, and a lot of the verse was kind of, uh, you say, uh, um, I, I don't know quite how to put it, but it was, it was, say, let's say, erotic, a little bit erotic. Let me read you just a very short stanza of a poem that he wrote to a a lady called La uh, Mary Robinson, who was a. Uh, an actress known for her beauty and also her promiscuity. <laughs> and he, this is what he, this is the po just one little stanza of what he wrote. When on thy lovely perfect face the sportive dimpled smile we see, with eager hope the cause we trace and wish to share each bliss with thee. That's a typical uh, uh, sample of the kind of verse that he wrote. 
And he, in his, uh, we'll talk about plays, but he wrote a, he wrote verse for uh, songs. Uh, it was very, he was very talented, not that he was a great poet, but I'm sure that the people who he knew and gambled with and ate and drank with loved his poetry. So it may also come as a surprise to some of our listeners to find out that Burgoyne was also a politician. Uh, he's elected to Parliament in the early 1760s, and in the book you point out that he served as an MP for the last 31 years of his life. Now, soldier parliamentarians were not unusual at the time, uh, but you note that serving as a soldier and a politician placed Burgoyne in a little bit of a delicate situation. As a soldier, he was bound to the king, uh, but politically, he also had to answer to his constituents and his conscience. How did Burgoyne navigate those two accountabilities? Well, this did come up, uh, and, and he he talked to Lord North, who was the prime minister, uh, about it. Uh, they expected, and the king and the and the prime minister expected uh, Burgoyne to vote the, the way the government wanted him to. And he said he normally, on most matters, he would. But if it was a matter that he thought was of great importance, he would vote his conscience uh, and maybe uh, in the interest of his constituents rather than the government. And that's what he did. So he made it clear at the outset then that he had these dual accountabilities and he'd follow the course that he thought appropriate at any moment in time. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. So so getting back now to the verse writing, and this is a little bit more important. So in 1773, Burgoyne organizes and choreographs uh, an elaborate French-style garden party, uh, which was referred to as a fête champêtre for his nephew, Lord Stanley. And he even enlisted the help of the very famous architect Robert Adam to carry it off. And as part of the festivities, he wrote a dramatic piece entitled Made of the Oaks. There's a famous theater impresario at the time, David Garrick, who saw it performed and he was impressed with Burgoyne's writing and he asked him to adapt it for the Drury Lane Theater. How successful was he when, uh, when he got this offer to become a playwright? He was quite successful. After the Made of the Oaks, and by the way, the, the party was for a wedding. It was to celebrate a wedding uh, of his nephew, Lord Stanley. After he came back from America much later, just to jump ahead, um, he wrote three more plays. One of them is called The Heiress. Uh, it was quite successful, played for, uh, I think, close to a month, which was a long time in, in those days for a play to run. Uh, and it was translated uh, and shown in European capitals. It was translated into French and uh, Spanish, and I think other 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 languages too. Um, so yes, he was a he was a significant playwright. Uh, the heiress was shown for uh, a generation later, still being shown. So. On the political front, the situation, uh, while all this was going on and Burgoyne was, was devoting some of his time to writing verse, on the political front, the situation in British North America had steadily deteriorated. And by 1775, the American Revolution had broken out. Uh, there were some in Parliament in Britain who sympathized with the grievances of the Americans, but Burgoyne didn't. Uh, what was his reaction to the outbreak of hostilities? Well, I think at, at first... He hoped that that 
the, it would be negotiated. The that they that the and as did as you say some of the others, such as Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox, who were prominent politicians at the time. Uh, uh, and uh, but the the king uh, and the govern and Lord North's government were uh, very very strongly opposed to the revolutionaries, the, the rebels. And uh, and that's how um, Burgoyne, uh, he joined them, uh, and I think quite enthusiastically. He believed, and he said in Parliament, that the, that the uh, rebels were like spoiled children. They'd, they'd been spoiled too long, treated well too long, and uh, if he had to go and fight against them, he certainly would. So Burgoyne actually does get sent to Boston in 1775, where he's a, an eyewitness to the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, but then he goes home uh, and is sent to Canada then in 1776 and serves under Governor Guy Carleton in a very short campaign to drive the Americans out of the province of Quebec, which they'd invaded in late 1775. In fact, that was the famous December, uh, you know, New Year's Eve attack on Quebec City by Richard Montgomery and Benedict Arnold, which was repulsed by Guy Carleton. Um, and so he then returns to London after serving briefly with Carleton. And it was a surprise to me to find out that then he selected to lead an army south from Canada into New York in 1777, given his limited combat experience. Why Burgoyne and what were the objectives of the campaign he was going to lead? Well, if I, if I could just backtrack a little bit, um, he, when he got back to England after the Canadian expedition that you mentioned, uh, he was he was asked uh, by uh, Lord Germain, who was the minister for the colonies, to uh, to write a, to develop a plan uh, by which the English hoped to uh, end the war in that, in that next year, 1777. And he did. And he, he, uh, he wrote a plan, gave it, in, I think, in February of 1777 to uh, Germain. It was approved by the king and by the government. Uh, and then the question was, uh, who would lead it? And... Um, Burgoyne wasn't the first choice, uh, but two pe two officers, two generals, turned it down. Uh, and Burgoyne, who may have actually pulled some strings himself, he wanted to be the the he wanted to lead the, this expedition, uh, and he was then he was then appointed, and uh, the, the 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 plan to to make to tell you in a sort of briefly. Uh, was that uh, an army uh, from Canada would go into upstate New York uh, and uh, cross the Hudson River from the uh, east to the west and uh, go down the, the river to Albany, New York, uh, where uh, they, would have, they would join with General Howe's uh, forces uh, Howe had taken New York in 1776 for Howe and his, his army to move up and join uh, uh, Burgoyne's army uh, at Albany. That was the plan. 
Uh, however, uh, Howe decided that he didn't particularly like the idea. Uh, he kind of ignored Burgoyne, got permission to go south instead of north and go down to Philadelphia, which he did. Uh, and uh, Burgoyne had come in from, from the Canada and was basically alone. Uh, his army, the forces of Howe did not join him. So basically, you, you have a plan, which at least on paper seems to make some sense with an army moving north and another one meeting it moving south. But then one of the prongs, the southern prong, gets deflected away from its junction with the army coming from the north. That's right. That's right. Okay, so, and, and that's a little surprising because uh, the British, it, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't as if they hadn't had any experience in North America. They had fought along the Hudson River, Lake Champlain, Richelieu River route during the Seven Years' War, so they knew the country, they knew the logistical challenges, but they went ahead uh, all the same. Okay, so with that in mind, we now come to the event with which Burgoyne's name has forever been associated, the Battle of Saratoga. What happened at the Battle of Saratoga, and, and what were the consequences of it, in your view, for the revolution and for the continent? Well, having crossed the Hudson, so he was, I believe, maybe about 20 to 30 miles north of Albany, uh, crossed it at a place called Saratoga, which is a very near uh, present uh, city of Saratoga Springs, which is a great place for horse racing. Um, uh, he, he then attempted to go south. And meanwhile, the Americans had got together and a, had assembled a very strong force, far outnumbering Burgoyne. And uh, when uh, on September 19, uh, he uh, tried to, to uh, break through the, the British on his way to Albany, um, he was stopped by the Americans. There was a, it was a bloody battle. Uh, you might say the British won it because uh, they they controlled the battlefield after the battle was over, but they lost uh, had great casualties. Uh, while the Americans could keep uh, resupplying their troops, and by, there were plenty of plenty of Americans who were very eager to. to to fight the, the British. Um, and so uh, they camped there for three weeks uh, after the battle. Uh, and then he tried again in what he called, they called a reconnaissance in force to try to break through and find out whether they could break through. That was the second battle. That was on October 7th. Uh, and they lost that battle. They lost more men. They were, uh, by this time, the British Army, just to give you an idea, had started with about 7,500 uh, troops. Uh, by the time they, uh, after the second battle of Saratoga, uh, they were down to a, a roughly half of that, they, less than half, about 3,500. Uh, and uh, they were completely surrounded by the Americans. Americans had roughly fourteen or 15,000 against their 3,500. Uh, uh, Burgoyne called a council of war. Uh, uh, that was a council of his senior officers, generals, uh, and they, uh, they uh, unanimously 
uh, voted to sur surrender. We, uh, there was no alternative. He, by that time, he couldn't retreat back to Canada, and he couldn't advance. And and by the way, you mentioned uh, logistics. Uh, the men and the horses were hungry and thirsty. Uh, it was still summer up there, or late uh, late summer, early fall in uh, up in upstate New York. Uh, they were they were exhausted, hungry, and very greatly diminished. And and he Burgoyne really was forced to surrender his army. So Burgoyne then he surrenders. Um, he's surrounded. He's running out of supplies. His force is diminished. He surrenders, and his army surrenders. And it took six months. But about six months after Saratoga, Burgoyne himself was paroled and he returned home, but his army, which came to be referred to as the Convention Army, remained in captivity. What kind of reception did Burgoyne get when he got home, and what happened to his troops? Well, let me just start with the troops. The Surrender Treaty allowed the, the defeated army to be picked up in Boston by British ships and taken home. Uh, Congress rejected that. They've refused to ratify, the American Congress refused to ratify the, uh, the, the, the treaty. The men, the captive army, uh, as I said, about 3,500, were marched to Cambridge, Massachusetts, just outside Boston, and they spent the winter there. They, at first, they didn't even know that the that the what Congress had done, they kept it secret. Uh, they were they were given horrible housing uh, to protect themselves from a New England winter. Uh, and uh, later on, uh, this was after Burgoyne had left. Uh, they were marched down to Virginia in the middle of the next winter. Uh, later on, after that, they were marched to Maryland. And they never were restored to England until the end of the war, which was after six years. By that time, the army, uh, starting, as I said, with 7,400, had about 400 men. Many of them had deserted. Many of them had died of sickness uh, and, and from the treatment that they were given. It was something that uh, Jefferson at the time said it was a shame for, on the American side. Um, as to Burgoyne, uh, he went back and he was made the scapegoat of the, of the, um, uh, the, the disaster. Uh, he tried, he asked for a court-martial, that he be court-martialed so that he could publicly redeem his reputation. That was refused. Uh, he, as you said, he was on parole uh, and the king wanted him to go, tried to get him. In fact, he was ordered to go back to America. Instead of that, he resigned his commission and he refused to go back. He said that would be, that it would kill him. He had a lot of medical problems at that time, particularly gout. So early on uh, in our conversation, Norman, you mentioned that, that one of the results of the Battle of Saratoga was the French finally deciding to come in on the side of the Americans. But do you think it's fair to say that Saratoga was also decisive to the extent that it was a clear indication uh, to the Americans, to the rebels, that they could actually 
come out on top in the conflict? Yes, I do think. I think both are true. Um, uh, but the 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 French Navy was very important. If you, if you scroll, scroll forward to 1781, uh, when an American army under, uh, excuse me, a British army under General Cornwallis was trapped uh, in Virginia and the coast of Virginia, uh, there was it was the French fleet that that prevented them. But they from uh, from uh, and it was partly. Uh, Responsible for uh, Cornwallis's sur- similar surrender, but uh, Burgoyne uh, was treated uh, like a, a pariah uh, uh, by the by 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 the the king who he had been quite friendly with uh, before the before uh, Saratoga, um, and. Um, uh, he this was on a few years later um the government was defeated and the whigs took over that this was this government had been a tory government under lord north uh i think this was 1782 um uh, he was uh, burgoyne was reinstated and was sent to uh, ireland to command the british forces in ireland which was sort of like a colony of britain at the time Burgoyne, so after the passage of a few years, after the passage of some time, he eventually does then regain royal favor and continued his career in the army and in parliament. And at the very end of the book, you refer to him as a worthy representative of the 18th century enlightenment. What aspects of Burgoyne's character led you to that conclusion? Well, he was a humanist. He was a rational man. Um, he, he was a, he was Everybody, he's a picture of a gentleman. A um, hundred years after his death, he died in 1792, George Bernard Shaw wrote a play called The Devil's Disciple and brought Burgoyne into it. And he gave Burgoyne the, the nickname of uh, Gentleman Johnny. And that is really stuck. He was a real, he was a real, uh, 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 he was a real gentleman. He was brave. He was witty. He was talented in many ways, as a playwright, as a as a politician, as a conversationalist. I've enjoyed his company during the last few years. Uh, uh, he was he was um, he was ambitious. He had his faults. He was. He, he he could be reckless, and it may be that uh, his venturing into the uh, American colonies with this army without really good logistical support was a kind of recklessness that, that uh, uh, if you have to put any, put some of the blame for the disaster on uh, Burgoyne, uh, it was because he wasn't logistically prepared he he had never he'd had very little experience he had no experience as a general in combat he'd been a he'd been a big brigadier a dashing brigadier in portugal but his experience as a as a general was was nothing really and uh, when he fought battles which there were uh, before he got to saratoga uh, he was in uh, one battle, 
in in America in Northern America, um, uh, he behaved like a field officer, not like a general. He was in the thick of the combat. Uh, he he was adored by his men because he was brave and took all the risks that they did. But uh, a smarter general, say. Uh, uh, the the American general at Saratoga, Horatio Gates, he was two miles behind the battle, directing the battle, but with you know getting messengers coming in on horseback, telling him what was going on, and then he could really control the battle. Burgoyne put himself in right in the middle of the battle. It was very difficult to control, and I think that was based on lack of experience, but also a great desire to get into it. And, I, I, you know, so um, uh, he was a very admirable, admirable, admirable man, uh, in, in my opinion. And uh, that's why uh, his name, even though the only, the only really major thing about him was this battle that's rem that history remembers him, uh, he has been written about time and again. Uh, because he's such an attractive figure, I think. Well, Norman, on that note, I'd really like to thank you for joining me today and telling us about uh, your latest book. Thank you very much. Appreciate being here. My guest today was Norman Poser. His book, From the Battlefield to the Stage, The Many Lives of General John Burgoyne, was published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca and the best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on May the 2nd, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society.